lowest place on earth and a rock heard around the world. We're headed today to the salty waters of the Dead Sea, so-called because nothing can live in it. Yet the Dead Sea is alive with great stories, both past and future. Join us as we head down 1,400 feet below sea level to the lowest place on earth. Welcome to the Shalom Y'all Ministries podcast. Hi, I'm your co-host Adam Keim, alongside my good friend, Dr. Daniel McCabe. Daniel, how's the fall weather coming along in Alabama? Well, it's cold, but I've noticed <laughs> today out my window here in my office that the sun is beginning to peek out from a couple of days of, of a little gloom and rain. So I think we're, people are going to start heading back out of their houses and, and hopefully we'll warm up a little bit today. So it's a beautiful day today in Alabama. Excellent. The purpose of our podcast is to teach and encourage those who love the Bible, the land of the Bible, and the people of the land. We also lead educational tours to the country of Israel, for we've seen how a walk through the land will deepen your walk with the Lord and forever change the way you read your Bible. The word shalom in Hebrew means peace, and for our ministry, the letter S in Shalom Y'all Ministries stands for Scripture Study. Adam and I and those who are part of this ministry, we take the study of the Bible very seriously. We believe that the Bible accurately records the words that God spoke to us through men like Paul, David, and Moses. And we believe the Bible was written without error. And when we read it, we believe what it says. That's who we are here at SYM, and we're so glad you've joined us. So in our first segment, every time we take a few minutes to cover various topics, could be stories from Israel, archaeological findings, discoveries in the scriptures that we've made, trivia and more. Daniel, what do you have for us to get started today? Well, I think I have a pretty interesting news story for you. This past July, staff members of the Temple Institute in Jerusalem flew to a ranch in Comanche, Texas. Yeehaw. Yeah. Do you, have you ever been to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem? Uh, I have, yes. And to Comanche, uh, Texas. Okay. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Because Comanche, <laughs> Texas is about 30 minutes from where you're at. And of course, yep. that's where I lived until I moved to Alabama. And so I've been to Comanche, Texas many times. But as many times as both you and I have been to Jerusalem, we've never actually gone together. So I just wasn't sure if you'd actually mm-hmm. been to the Temple Institute. But it's a pretty fascinating place. I think you'd agree with that. Well, this past July, as I said, staff members from there, they they flew to Comanche. Their purpose was to inspect five red heifers. In their desire to comply with the teaching of Numbers 19, these Jewish leaders are searching diligently for a heifer that is red or auburn in color. And that's two weeks now in a row that I've mentioned Auburn, right? <laughs> yes. But red or auburn in color. And they have to be at least two to three years of age with no physical defects or blemishes. The animals can't have even been used once for physical labor. And they must be entirely red, including their hooves. And even two hairs of a different color will not do. So in September, the heifers were flown to Israel for safekeeping and observation, and then they're going to be inspected in another year or so after they reach the required age. 
So the ashes from a red heifer are needed to purify the land, the implements of the temple, and the priesthood for the next Jewish temple. And if any one of the red heifers, excuse me, if any one of the red heifers passes future inspection after coming of age, it's gonna spark some major excitement for religious Jews, and it's gonna stoke the fears of religious Muslims because the Jews will be ready to build their temple. Right now, a Muslim shrine sits on the site where the Jews want to build. So that's a recipe for some serious religious and international tension. And we'll have to stay tuned over the next year or so to see what happens. And the famous Dome of the Rock sits there now, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that's where many Jews, there are some differences of opinion, but many Jews believe that the new temple must be built. And that's probably why there's going to be this enormous uh, tension between them. All right. So, Daniel, because of your name, I assume that you are an official member of the tribe of Dan, right? Well, if that tribe originated in Ireland, yeah. No, okay, well. Probably so. (laughs) Who knows how far they got. Okay. But maybe not this particular tribe. Okay. Um, All right. Well, as Joshua cast lots for the tribe's land allotments when they were were coming into the promised land and and taken from the Canaanites at God's direction, the, the Danites, the tribe of Dan, they received parts of the Shephelah, which is just west of Jerusalem, and the city of Joppa, among other towns. But they were not able to dislodge the Canaanites in that area. You can read about that in Joshua 19 and Judges chapter 1. Now in Judges chapter 18, we read that the Danites went up to the northern part of the country to a quiet and unsuspecting people at Laish. Now, the people at Laish were wealthy and they lived in security like the Sidonians. And so sometimes people wonder why the tribe of Dan, if you look at a map of tribal allotments of of Israel, why they are way up north when their tribal allotment that Joshua had for them was kind of in the middle western part of the country. Well, in Judges 18, we read that 600 men of the tribe of Dan ambushed Laish and burned it. Then they rebuilt the city, named it Dan, of course, and they set up Micah's carved image that he made. It was an ignominious way to begin their time in the land, that's for sure. Uh, And that is why the Danites settled in the far northern part of Israel rather than in their original allotment. So they failed to conquer the Canaanites in their allotment, so they took Laish from an unsuspecting people. Now, ironically, that's... It's one of my favorite places to visit in Israel, actually, the city of Dan. It's in a beautiful area of the country. I I can imagine why the people of Laish wanted to live there and why it was peaceful for them. Um, And the city's remains now are full of just rich history, and they're very well preserved, and there's a lot to see there at that location, which I think, Dan, you were there recently, weren't you? Yeah, we visited there in September, and some of the pictures we took were just absolutely stunning of the the waters and the hills just beautiful absolutely postcard kind of yeah. pictures it's just a beautiful area uh, jeroboam set up one of the golden calves up there um, you can see abraham's gate which is a canaanitic mud brick gate which is likely the one that was there when abraham himself chased the five eastern kings as he rescued lot in genesis 14. 
Now, of course, we could say a lot more about the city of Dan, but that'll have to do for now. So what trivia question do you have for us today? Well, let me begin by asking you a question. So, do you, Adam, do you have a favorite fruit? Um, yeah, anything that's a fruit, basically. Okay, <laughs> I okay. love fruit. Of really? All types. Okay. Yeah. You don't have a favorite, though. Well, let's go with figs. I, I'm partial to figs. They remind me of Israel. I love them. Fresh, dried, baked Wonderful. in things. So okay. I'll go with a fig. All right. Well, I'm more of a blueberry and a pumpkin man myself. So if you were to take a shot, though, at um, what Goliath's favorite fruit might be, I wonder what you might think it would be, you or our listeners. But it might have been, get this, Goliath's favorite fruit might have been a banana. Huh. Mm-hmm. So modern researchers recently, I know this is a little um, gruesome, but they, they recently scraped the teeth of ancient Canaanites and Philistines who lived during the time of David and Solomon. And they discovered to their surprise that they had eaten bananas, but bananas didn't grow in the land at that time. So, well, you might recall that a a major international highway ran right through Philistia at that time, which certainly would have enabled them to trade for bananas that we can speculate, came as far away as South Asia, and particularly the area we know today as Malaysia, New Guinea, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Certainly fresh bananas wouldn't have lasted the long journey from South Asia to the Middle East. So anthropologists have wondered how did they get bananas? And they've surmised that the bananas enjoyed by the Philistines were probably dried, perhaps in much the same way that we enjoy banana chips today. Okay, so speaking of fruits, here's our weekly trivia question. There are six fruits mentioned in the Bible. How many can you name? And I'll give you a hint. One of them is not a banana. (laughs) We'll have the answer for you later in the podcast. Jewish rebels, Roman legions, the patriarch Abraham, Lot's wife, secluded monks, and General Joshua are just some of the names and stories connected with the land that surrounds the Dead Sea, what the Bible calls the Salt Sea. Today we want to tell you two more stories that add to the mystique of this barren but beautiful region. At a place called Qumran on the west side of the Dead Sea, a young Bedouin shepherd with a rock changed history forever. One of the shepherd's goats wandered away from the herd, so wondering if perhaps it had entered a nearby cave and hoping to force it out, he tossed a rock inside, heard an unusual clink, and later, after climbing inside, discovered ancient jars filled with scrolls. In this and the 11 other caves that have been excavated since that day in late 1946 or early 1947, they're not quite sure the the dating, but researchers have logged nearly 1,000 ancient manuscripts, almost all in fragments, dating between the 3rd century BC and the 1st century AD. Most of the manuscripts, now called the Dead Sea Scrolls, are written in Hebrew, although there are some in Aramaic and a few in Greek. 
the majority of them are written on parchment. Some are written on papyrus, and even one is on copper. Now, if you're interested in that last one, the copper scroll, you can read about it in our February 12th, 2022 weekly, which can be found, by the way, on the archives page of our website at shalomyallministries.org. I have a very dear friend that maybe we should have on the podcast sometime, Shelly niece who wrote a book about the copper scroll and i've known shelly for many many years since she was a young young lady um in any event roughly one quarter of the manuscripts found inside the caves are biblical manuscripts one of which is called the great isaiah scroll it's the only scroll found in the caves that completely preserves the text of an old testament book and i very proudly, Adam, I have a framed picture of the great Isaiah scroll above our couch in the living room. My wife is sweet to let me do that. That was given to me by my very good friend, Chris. Uh, a special I've shout seen out to that you. picture. Yeah. Shout out to Chris. Yeah. Shout out to Chris. Wonderful for, friend in ministry. I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, laboring in Italy right now. Hello, Chris. Hi, but, Chris. Uh, I've seen that picture and I know that it is a virtue to avoid envy and jealousy, (laughs) though I must admit my sins. I am envious of your picture. That's a great picture. It is. Yeah. Well, in any event, you can, um, you can actually see many of these biblical manuscripts of which one is, of course, is the great Isaiah scroll. You can see them in a museum in Jerusalem called the shrine of the book, which is dedicated to their preservation and to their display. And it's actually a pretty fascinating place. The hallway leading into the shrine of the book, it it resembles a cave to capture the idea of this is where we got these manuscripts. And the cave leads to a large exhibition room, which next creates the illusion that you've been miniaturized and transported inside one of the ancient scroll jars. A walkway around the circumference of the room is filled with display cases for the manuscripts, which are rotated every few months. And in the center of the room, designed like a Torah scroll, is a facsimile of what the curator of the museum calls the Mona Lisa of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Great Isaiah Scroll. In addition to the great Isaiah scroll and other biblical manuscripts found in the caves alongside the Dead Sea were manuscripts of books not included in the Bible, such as the book of Enoch, which is actually referenced in Jude 14 and 15, and the book of Tobit, which is included in the Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, as well as writings that record the beliefs and rules of the community of people who were responsible for the manuscripts and who most researchers identify with the Essenes. That's a group of Jews who separated themselves from life in Jerusalem in order to pursue a closer relationship with the Lord. Well, fragments from every book of the Bible have been found at Qumran, except for the book of Esther, which is the only book of the Bible that doesn't include the name of God. Jewish custom requires that any document which includes the name of God must be properly buried rather than casually discarded, leading many to conjecture that the caves were a storage area for worn-out parchments removed from circulation. And that makes sense to me. But what makes this find even more spectacular 
is the dating of the scrolls, for they are 900 to approximately 1,200 years older than the oldest complete copy of the Old Testament that had existed before that time, the Lenin Codex. Wow. And yeah, and when scholars compared the Hebrew text of both of these manuscripts, they found no appreciable differences had crept into the text of the Bible in 1,000 years. So God had preserved his word over the centuries, and the Dead Sea Scrolls testify of God's faithfulness. Certainly not like that giant game of telephone that skeptics like to think <laughs> that over the millennia of translation and interpretation, the you know the the original message gets lost. Nothing like that at all. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls really attest to the uh, to the the veracity of the of the words that we have in our Bible today. Um, that's the same message as as what was written originally. Yeah, absolutely, unchanged and preserved. One of my favorite things also about the shrine of the book, uh-huh. it smells a lot better than an actual cave where the Dead Sea Scrolls were yeah. found. <laughs> yeah, imagine. If you climb into any... one of those caves, you will be assaulted by the strong aroma of guano. Have you been inside one of the Dead Sea Scrolls Cave caves? 11 a few times. Oh, okay. Wow. All yeah. Right. Wonderful. You, you climb up in there. Last time I was there, it was about 120 degrees in that Jericho area sun. Okay. And uh, yeah, the guano smell is, is something you just, it stays with you <laughs> for a yeah. while. Yeah, okay. That's probably, probably gonna, that image is probably going to stay with our readers for a while too. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they, they were very well preserved over time, uh, mainly due to the arid climate of the region. And the scrolls bear their name, of course, because they were found near the Dead Sea, naturally. It's very interesting to learn about this area. If you ever visit the Dead Sea, you will soon discover that you are in a very unique place on Earth. As we mentioned earlier, it's the lowest surface level on the planet, even though it's not far from sea level, only 50 miles about from the Mediterranean coastline. So the Dead Sea is the saltiest water on Earth. It has a salinity of 34%. Now for comparison, the Great Salt Lake in Utah varies between 5 and 27%, and the Earth's oceans average only about 3.5%. So it's 10 times saltier than ocean water. And it's called the Dead Sea because nothing can really live in it. It's been known as the Salt Lake, the Lake of Sodom, and the ancient Greeks and Romans called it the Asphalt Lake. Now, a wondrous prophecy is found in Ezekiel 47, verses 10 and 12. It says this, Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Enigliam. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. And on the banks on both sides of the river, they will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. Again, if you're at the Dead Sea today, or pretty much any time in antiquity, that description does not describe the Dead Sea area. No. So how can this be? Well, in the Millennial Kingdom that those last several chapters of Ezekiel focus on, specifically the temple 
of the millennial kingdom, a river will flow down from the new temple in Jerusalem. Now, I think as it flows down east, down into the Jordan Rift, it will connect with the Jordan River that flows there today, fresh water, and it will bring so much fresh water into the Dead Sea that its banks will swell and then the water will continue flowing down the rift to empty into the Gulf of Aqaba further to the south. Now, there's indication geographically that such a waterway existed way back when, but at some point dried up, causing the Dead Sea to gradually recede to this very day. Now, one theory holds as to why that may be that the events of Sodom and Gomorrah altered the landscape enough to cause this. But at any rate, the water is so salty now because it has nowhere to flow out. So it eventually evaporates and it leaves behind all of the mineral deposits that it picked up while flowing down the Jordan River. But the river that will flow into the Dead Sea in the kingdom will bring life. Ezekiel 47.12 goes on to say that this is because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. The trees' fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Well, we've already talked about how the Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth at present, but it's getting even lower. Presently, its water level is approximately 1,430 feet below sea level, and each year it drops another three and a half feet or so. So sadly, the surface area of the Dead Sea has decreased, and it's decreased by half since 1976 due to droughts, to evaporation, to the industrial extraction of its minerals and to the diversion of 90 to 95% of the water from the Jordan River and other streams that have historically supplied it. Both Israel and the country of Jordan need that fresh water from the Jordan to assist with the irrigation of crops and to supply drinking water for their nations. And while politicians and scientists on both banks frequently discuss the problem of the Dead Sea, for decades, there has been no great sense of urgency to change the status quo despite several proposals. For example, it's been proposed and recently they've decided not to, but one of the main ideas they had was to pipe up water from the Red Sea, but they've abandoned that idea. But they could increase the water flow from the Jordan River that comes from the Sea of Galilee, but they don't want to do that. Or they could reduce the amount of minerals being extracted from the Dead Sea itself. And I think that's the biggest place where the decrease in the surface elevation there of the Dead Sea comes from. But there is hopeful news, despite their unwillingness to make any of these changes. The last year, um, in 2021, Israel and Jordan signed a cooperation agreement in which Jordan will construct a major solar power plant to generate electricity that they're going to then share with Israel. And in return, Israel agreed to share desalinated water from the Mediterranean Sea with Jordan. So perhaps the Dead Sea will soon spring to life again. Now for the answer to our trivia question, which was what six fruits are mentioned in the Bible? One of the six sounds to me more like a vegetable, but I'm told it's a fruit and it's the olive. Ah, yes. 
Okay, yeah, and then there's the grape, the fig, your perhaps favorite, right? And then the pomegranate, the date, and one that's really easy to forget, or at least it was for me, although most people who think about the first story in Genesis would remember, even though it doesn't mention the apple, people think the apple was the fruit from which Adam and Eve ate, but though not mentioned there, it's mentioned a number of other places in the Bible. So the olive, the grape, fig, pomegranate, date, and apple. I think I said them all. Well, Adam, I, I don't know. When I was working on this trivia question, the fruits of Israel might actually make for an interesting podcast topic in the future. So we could consider that and maybe even do that sometime. Maybe we should. That, okay. that would be great. Uh, funny enough, but you talked about bananas that maybe Goliath, you know, that was his favorite fruit. Bananas evoke fond memories of Israel for me. Now, a lot of things do, but bananas ironically do. Um, at the site of, I know, right? At the yeah. site of the Sermon on the Mount, okay, near the Church of the Beatitudes, there is currently a large banana farm. Uh, the okay. Field, the fields in, in which the people sat to hear Jesus so long ago are currently being used to farm bananas, or at least that's one of the crops grown there regularly. Also, one of the greatest treats I've ever eaten was at a restaurant in Jericho, where I, joy, I enjoyed baby bananas, also known as lady fingers, right off the tree. The restaurant owner had just bunches of them, and he said, go ahead and help, your, help yourself. I, I might have to, on the spot, promote that to my favorite fruit ever. That was wonderful. Fantastic. So, well, yeah. we'll have to go there. So that we'll, when we go next time, we'll, we'll swing by. We'll enjoy some baby bananas together. Very good. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Shalom Y'all Ministries podcast. We hope you enjoyed this look into the amazing Dead Sea Scrolls. And remember that the Lord has seen fit to preserve his word for all time. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Shalom, y'all. Shalom, y'all.